Hello everyone. Uh, welcome to another podcast for 10x success for startups and innovations. And uh, I'm here today with a very successful uh, corporate professional as well as a serial entrepreneur and investor from Silicon Valley, Nate Ramanathan. He is uh, at the uh, frontier of cutting edge AI technology uh, in a company which is also called AI. It is uh, into artificial perception and uh, uh, he has some great insights on how to scale a company. You know, we, we listen to a lot of talks about uh, startups, acquisitions, but really what does it take to scale a company from uh, the startup phase into the next phase or uh, when they get acquired by a big corporation, how do you manage this massive problem of integrating a startup into a corporation? It's, it's cultural, it's technical, it's uh, financial. There are so many levels to it and uh, no, nobody else can um, answer these questions better than Nate because he's uh, at the eye of this uh, entire, uh, uh, you know, our hurricane, I would call it, integration and merger. And uh, so welcome, Nate. Thank you. Thank you, Vida. Uh, I really am happy to uh, take this podcast. Uh, one thing is this is near and dear to my heart. Uh, uh, scalability, without scalability, we don't have an invention. The invention that happens and stays as one, unit of one, uh, is great. It's appreciated, but that's it. It never uh, meets the needs of the humanity. So it has to be scaled. It can be millions, it can be hundreds, but it has to scale from that one prototype unit. So that's my always been my goal is to take something that is invented and take it to a large-scale manufacturing. Um, so that said, the right time we are sitting in, scalability is under a big question mark. Right? Yeah. Because everything I, is under a big question mark. Yes, yes. Uh, how amazing. Invention does not make sense without scalability. Nate, uh, how are you dealing with the situation at work? You seem pretty confident uh, about this in our previous conversation. You seem to be in control. You said you expected these things. So could you tell a little bit to our, uh, uh, you know, our listeners, how did you prepare for taking on this uh, pandemic situation at work? So this goes back. Um, I would say to the to the dot com bubble, right? So so uh, I was an young entrepreneur uh, in been four or five years in the industry. Dot com bubble really showed us a lot of things can change in a matter of days and hours, uh, and that has given us a advance warning. And then came the two thousand seven tsunami in Japan that disturbed the supply chain and companies dependent on Japan was affected and came Thailand floods, which actually disturbed a lot of the disc drive industry and we suffered parts and it didn't hit home directly, but it did indirectly. Mm-hmm. And then came the mortgage crisis, right back to back, and it disturbed the industry. And we were sound for quite some time, uh, I would say like two to three years. And then the Iceland volcano burst and Europe was shut down. A lot of people didn't put these things together one on one. If all of those had happened in the same time, we would have had a huge disruption. So since 2010, we had a clean ride. Globalization is the theme of the world. Everything was moving. But one thing always lurks. It's called business continuity. At any given time, our ecosystem is so fragile that something in one part of the world affects us somewhere else right Mm -hmm. so this has been always been my thing every time i look at a product like when i look at a supply chain what is the risk we have that sometimes it's paranoid 
but you have to be. When this happened, I was in China in December and uh, the actual situation is evolving. And that was my last visit uh, to Asia. And I came back and I was questioning my uh, Chinese firms, like, how are you going to cope up with this? And then it just flew up completely out of control. You can't shut down and everything spread out, whole China went to lockdown. But still, Europe was functioning. US mm -hmm. was functioning. Mm -hmm. uh, my thing to, to AI was like, okay, let's plan for the worst. So let's start thinking about how do we have the sensors to work from home? Because that's one thing we need to do. Let's look at our supply chain. So January, we started looking closely at our supply continuity, not only for China, for the rest of the world. So we started moving things around. So that's one of my uh, main tasks was to manage the supply continuity so that we can continue our research, continue our prototyping, getting into scalability. So, and that helped us when actually that happened in Silicon Valley when we were shut down, we were already prepared. In two days before Alameda County shut down, we were already prepared to have the units ready for people. So we were volunteering, okay, let's start working from home. So when actually we were forced to go home, we were already home. So it's, it's kind of like it happened over a period of few weeks, but if somebody says, I didn't see this coming, um, no, that shouldn't be the surprise because December through early March when we were shut down. So that said, it's easy for company like our size, right? We had very few suppliers and we were able to manage everything. But there are companies across the globe who have massive supply chain in auto industry as well as other industries, but that's going to disturb. But if we all focus on globalization, we have to look at the counter side of it. What is the risk in globalization? How do we mitigate it? Globalization is not it's something that you can avoid. We don't want to, but at the same time, you have to balance the risk. Uh, it is a, it's going to be a topic of research for the next 10 years, right? Yeah, so yeah. <laughs> scalability comes problems of how do you manage the risk? Oh my God, this is, this is truly eye-opening. I like the sound of it. You are so prepared. Nothing surprised you. And this is the sign of a very resilient uh, business model. It's a very yep. resilient process model, very resilient supply chain model. I'm, I'm a huge skeptic of lean, lean canvas, mm -hmm. lean thinking. And mm -hmm. I'm a huge skeptic of startups as well because they are not uh, anti-fragile. They are very mm -hmm. fragile. How many startups, uh, you know, actually make it uh, for many years, but the kind of process you're talking about, this is pretty resilient, pretty anti-fragile. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I, I, you brought up the right thing. I actually, my PhD thesis was Lean Six Sigma back in early 2000. And I stopped the thesis and I, I, I did take a lot of um, classes and I taught um, uh, concurrent engineering, which is part of Lean in Bain State University, Detroit for a year. And I'm a proponent of Lean, but with Lean, you have to look at the risk mitigations. Lean is currently under a big question mark because just in time made yeah. the inventory for auto companies just one day worth of inventory because inventory yeah. is considered as muda, which is, which is waste. So now, now we don't have inventory. Now everything is shutting down. So now it puts a question mark. Where do you balance it? Where is the balance between being lean and sustaining? Right? So you brought the right question mark about startup and lean. They don't really go hand in hand. Lean, you cannot do it just a paperwork or doing it as, hey, 
I want to save money, I'm doing this. It has to be thought through, well thought through process. If you don't, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you will run into trouble. So, yeah. so mm -hmm. right now, a lot of people are realizing that, oh my God, Lean has helped us for 10, 15 years. Now it is not, it's actually hurting us. Yes, yes, I, I totally agree with you. So by the way, Nate, I'm authoring, I'm co-authoring a book called The Solution Book. We are using problem solving templates and we have a template uh, of this, you know, you mentioned the word Muda, uh, how to reduce uh, waste and how to optimize workflows. So um, uh, I totally agree with you on the fact that this whole process needs to be thought through. Lean is not ready for shocks yet. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, yep. not, uh, it's not a resilient uh, canvas. So what will a resilient uh, business canvas look like? What do you think it will look like? I just I mean, if you want to answer yeah. that. Yeah, I, I would I would take a stab at it, but I, I'm thinking through it. And actually, I've been writing and of course, the AI is going to be publishing something from um, our marketing team already asked me some questions and they are publishing something similar to the, the lean and how do we make a supply chain resilient. And one of the thing when you look at lean, uh, yes, you want to keep single piece flow, you want to keep the inventory low, but where the inventory is coming from, you have to look at a scenario modeling it saying, Hey, it shuts down. What do we do? So uh -huh. example right now, yeah. China is back up and running yes. and can our factories that has tools right now, can they pack up and send it over somewhere else and run it? Right. This is yeah. not applicable for everything, but yeah. there are things that you can do, but we are not made that way. This is going to bring out autonomous in the, in the tooling industry. So where is the bottleneck right now? Automotive industries cannot make the next set of tools because tooling is not automated fully. Yes. So this is going to drive a different set of industry. How do we, the basics, how do you make the basics that is easily peeled off one place and moved over to another place yeah. and start off right away, right? Yeah, I, I like the we, sound of it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, so that is not there yet. So, so example, qualification of a machine is it's a complicated process. So how you take a particular machine and do the, the whole qualification process, how do we make it simple, right? If you take yeah. one and you plug it in another place, it does the same exact thing. It yes. doesn't matter whether it is in Africa, you yes. make a makeshift place somewhere in the middle of Namibia desert, or it's in the middle of uh, Detroit. It shouldn't yeah. matter. So if we cannot make that happen in real time, yeah. Lean is always going to have a problem. Yes, it's an amazing thought. I, I got me to think about 3D printing. You know, I've, I've been working with Singularity University. Uh, they are more on the exponential innovation side. They talk about moonshots all the time. But uh, in the last cohort where I attended my uh, program, most people talked about 3D printing. To me, mm -hmm. back then it sounded far-fetched, but not long, not long before you actually thought about it. We really need mm -hmm. those uh, plugging, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, machine parts here, uh, which can be manufactured locally. And uh, what mm -hmm. are your thoughts on that? 3D printing is it scalable or? Yes, yes. I've been following 3D printing industry for quite some time. And yes, it's going to be replacing a lot of the complex stuff. It is not there yet, but the research is going to advance. This whole crisis is going to advance the 3D printing industry. So yeah, now, if you, yeah, 3D printing is going to get advanced. And, and added to that, the processes we have over this period of time, Example, automotive industry, one of the largest industry uh, in any part of the world, uh, they have created bureaucracy in qualification activities and how you qualify a product yes. because 
yes. because of the liability issue, right? The recall is expensive. The yes. bad part is expensive. You want cheap, 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 right? Yes. So they have made it so complicated and it's, it's, it's weighing itself down. Now, somebody like a, a newcomer in the automotive industry, like Tesla, for example, they have a much leaner process and they can adapt to these kind of situations much better than somebody who's traditional. And there are, this applies to many situations, including electronic uh, the control boards, like easy use in a traditional automotive versus what Tesla has, Tesla has three versus somebody has 80, right? right. They are defying the traditional automotive qualification process. It comes with the risk, right? Failures and everything. We have to balance between these two. Yes. We cannot have a very rigid system and very rigid set of toolings and infrastructures. How do you make it modular? How do you make it agile? How do you make it movable in case of disaster? Say you have 24 hours, 36 hours to move certain things. Can we move it? If the modularity is what it's going to develop, then now we don't have a risk. If something happens here, we quarantine area, move things over somewhere else and keep running. So this is an example right now. Yeah, this is amazing. I hadn't thought about it. You're talking about modularity at a very different level here. And you know, why should startups work on their own? They should collaborate with uh, companies who have the know-how, like, you know, a startup like AI could collaborate with Tesla and mm -hmm. they, they should be open to this kind of consortium uh, centric approach. Well, mm -hmm. uh, a lot of global challenges are uh, being solved by con con uh, consortiums like OpenAI uh, project, there are a lot of projects where drug design is being open sourced to many, many companies and universities. So this is really great. In, in our book, there, there are a couple of templates I use. It is called um, uh, CPOC, uh, you know, Six Sigma, uh, uh, you know, input uh, process output, you know, where you measure the supply chain as well. There's another one for purchasing metrics. If you have short term and long term relationship with suppliers or vendors, then um, uh, how do you uh, get into partnership with them? Do you do a one-time deal or do you do you have like a, a long-term collaboration? So what are your thoughts on those templates? Do you use those Six Sigma templates at all or does it make sense in this time? Yeah, of course. I, I, I am uh, actually, I did my Six Sigma black belt and I, I was, uh, so my master's is in lean um, uh, oh gosh, manufacturing. Okay. <laughs> so I did, and I did take classes with uh, the, the famous Taguchi, and I'm a big proponent of Six Sigma. Uh, right. I do refer that, uh, and, and so I, over the years, I've created my own way of doing certain uh, things, okay. and you come like up with that. your own ways. So you touch two points. One is a supplier for current use and one-time use and done, and there is a strategic partnership. You, so I look at it as a supplier relationship as an alliance, always, mm -hmm. right? If you are in a scalable world, that mm -hmm. you need partners, you need, it's like a marriage. Good marriages end up happy like ever after, but bad ones end up in bad, nasty divorce and kids are always unhappy, right? So you have to look at that way when you're building a supplier. It's a one-time deal is a dating, right? So that's the analogy I've always used. This goes back like 20 years. I use this analogy of marriage and supplier relationship. So one time it's like, yeah, you go on a date. Yep, you look at it and this supplier might work. Right. Yeah. If it doesn't, yeah. you move on. And then yeah. you get into a partnership and you do a master supply agreement. And there you have to be careful, especially getting into an automotive platform or a medical device, a launch. Now you are married into the supply chain. Yes. And yeah. that marriage, if it's not going well, it is a disaster. Right. Yeah. So how do you analyze that? This is, this is like 
every every large company suffers with that thing. How do we? It's a relationship. Like every yeah, yeah. marriage, it has to be nurtured. It has yeah. to be given enough attention. It's yeah. not supposed to be taken for granted. Yes, I totally totally agree with you. You know, uh, I'm I'm in a different kind of human uh, supply chain here. I work in, for a Stanford-based startup in medical mm -hmm. publishing, and most of our uh, really uh, cream of the talent comes from India, from top schools, from IITs, uh, mm -hmm. Indian Institute of Science, and Tata Institute Fundamental Research, and such. And this talent, we need a supply of it because uh, we are uh, making medical publishing open access and. We've tried a partnership, you know, it failed very badly, very mm -hmm. badly. So, mm -hmm. but this is more a PhD level talent and it is for human, uh, it's a human resource, not exactly manufacturing mm -hmm. parts, but the principles are the same. It's a marriage, you have to nurture it. And yep. this, is a, yep. this is a people centric effort, you know, it's not just, uh, uh, you're not dealing with commodities. It's a human, human effort to connect with two organizations. Yeah, so, so on that note, I want to ask you, you know, this is one of the biggest challenges in scaling. How do two organizations with different cultures get into a partnership to foster scale? What are some of the best practices you recommend? Because I, so I, yeah, I've seen this fail very badly and people are yeah, fighting. Yeah, so I will tell you one thing. And in, I mean, every failure, you don't fail, you learn new things, yeah. how not to do things or how to do things. So yeah. the main thing is synergy. So consensus and synergy you have to build on. So if there's two large organizations, especially if it's an international market, example, working with a firm in China or Japan uh, or in Europe versus coming within the US market, right? So a firm in US. It's, it's not about the size and the power play. It's about what matters to them. You can be a small fish uh, like AI, we don't have a huge bank balance. We don't have revenue, but we have a huge potential to become one. So we don't have the same seat at the table, the power play as a large multi-million dollar, multi-billion dollar company, yes. but we can get the equal attention as long as we know where the synergy is between these two organizations. That's the first step any supply chain leader would look at is like, hey, I'm looking at all these supply base. What am I selling? I'm not, I'm not here to buy a component. I'm here to sell my views and ideas to this, this supplier. So it's more of a selling than buying when you're going from a small uh, supplier, small customer to a large supplier. So example, I, I learned this one even when I uh, was in the medical device field. It's, uh -huh. we, uh, we had a large company. We had, this was a $30 billion right now. It's a, it's a roughly a $90 billion company called Medtronic. And, and we, yeah. So we made pacemakers, defibrillators, and they do that. Uh, and, and I had this very unique component, which is a small little uh, a jewel, uh, which is used in watch, uh, which is also used as an insulator in a pacemaker. Right. So I have to go and purchase this out of Switzerland watch belt and where they supply to Rolex and every fancy watch, uh, they, they all use that, the jewels. And here I am a very small fish in that market, even though I'm a big company, but I'm buying handful of like say thousand of these versus they're selling millions of these out. So how do I get a date with this, this vendor is to sell my pitch. My pitch is, Hey, Yes, you're selling watch, but here you are saving lives. A wow. pacemaker wow. saves lives. So yes. you have to have your pitch, even though you are, you, you, you are the master of your world, when you're going into their world, you're nobody, right? Yes. You don't have that checkbook that you're going to write to them. 
Yeah. And even if you want to pay more money, I don't want to pay more money. I want the same price they're giving to a volume um, buyer. So that's the pitch. And the other way, if you look at the flip side to it, so if I'm a small guy like AI, I am selling them the big, huge idea of how do I build this product to be a everyday product in autonomous driving, in an ADAS market. So that's the pitch I took, take to these big custom, big suppliers. And first of all, they have to trust you, right? Yes. That doesn't come in one day. So yes. you have to earn their trust. And yes. it takes many meetings and you have to follow through. And again, you have to show that your company will survive the tide, mm -hmm. right? Every startup wave brings in hundreds of these companies. At the end of the day, when the low tide hits, a lot of these fish don't end up in the water, they end up in the shore and they die. So you want to be those fish in the water and they want to check you out. So they're not, they're not done. They, what they're going to look at, they look at your operation, they talk to you, they understand the methodology and why is your product better than the, your competition's product. So you're selling, you're not buying. So I always, whenever I am meeting a supplier, it's not just me buying, so I am the bigger guy here, I'm going to pay you. It's more like me selling to you. And that relationship continues all along. Even though we grow as a big company and we have a strong relationship, you have a regular communication with the supplier and making sure that you are constantly giving them feedback and being honest with them, right? There are things which you got to be honest. Right now, the situation, the market we are in, a lot of people are going to have crash, cash crises across yeah. the world. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I have already prepped most of my suppliers that there is going to be delay in payments because yes, it's not because we don't have money for you. It's because we have to balance it. We won't get revenue from our customers. We yeah. won't be able to do it. So let's negotiate right now for a longer period terms. So instead of 15 days right now we have, we've been paying diligently. Now we want 60 days because that'll help our cash flow and that'll help our customers' cash flow. In fact, it'll help you to have us survive. If we die, you have no customer, right? Yeah. So you start that early on that if you don't have a relationship, you cannot have the conversation. Right. It's all about the relationship. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This is amazing. Uh, the way you're prepping up for a, uh, you know, uh, the winter, you're stocking up for the winter. Uh, mm -hmm. So you survive the winter. And um, is there a specific term uh, ca uh, called for this in uh, Six Sigma or otherwise? You know, you, you would be a very good uh, startup coach or mentor. I know mm -hmm. you are an investor as well and uh, you have been a serial entrepreneur, but uh, uh, I, I, is there a name for this? Like, how do you prepare for the winter? How do you? So, so like, I, mm -hmm. yeah, I call it business continuity. Very simple. I'm a very simple guy. So I, I always use everything. You look at risk and as a leader, what you do, you look at every risk and you mitigate the risk. If you can see risks far enough, you yes. can mitigate them much easier. The closer it gets, then you get nervous and you will tend to make mistakes. So all how it is you, is how do, how do you enlist the risks? A lot of so, people may be unaware of a risk which is coming. What is your uh, due diligence so, in risk? Yeah. Yeah. So what I look at it is if, if things, how it's panning out in the world. So, so one is main thing is you always look at if it's globalized geopolitical risk. And then there is the threat leading from geopolitical risk, leading to other financial risks. And always when you are looking at an economy booming, everywhere it's booming, there all it is is there is a fragile thing. Whatever goes up will come down before it goes back again. So that's that's historical thing. 
So when you're looking at a market, when you're looking at a business, it all depends upon who is on top and who is running it. What is the dynamics? It, it, is, it is not something which you learn right away. You learn from experience. When right. you have an incident, example, this is an incident, Corona, the COVID-19 issue is an incident and people, most of them will tend to forget. It'll slowly fade away after 10 years, but there are people who are going to pick on this and develop things and strategize, but it will repeat again. It will only repeat worst. So yeah. when it repeats, you have to be, the prepared will be, it's like that you, you called it right. It's preparing for the winter. Yeah. The birds yeah. do it. The squirrels do it because, yeah. they, because not that they read a book, because it's been passed on by genetics, right? So some people are risk covers, they are going to plan. Some are going to not plan for the winter and they're going to suffer, right? So business leaders are just like that. They're going to prep. And, and I'm not going to take credit for AI, everything. We have strong leadership, our president, our CEO. We, when we were talking about it, they were able to quickly realize where it's going to go. So we, as a team, quickly had our plans ready. But if you don't have a team like that, now you have to convince them. And that is the most difficult part because if you are a one person saying, it's like Noah building an ark, right? Yes, so yes. Noah is saying there and building an ark when yes. there is nothing happening and the rest of them are looking at him as a fool. So that would be most of the case. And this incident would bring up the light to the kind of people, right? There are people who point out risk, risk management, Yes, and that those kind of people will get more attention, and they should be taken seriously. Yes, we have a technique called biomimicry, but we also have a risk framework in the book. Uh, mm -hmm. When I was doing that, uh, you know, there are uh, people come at risk from so many different angles. There is short-term risk, long-term risk. There is a mm -hmm. high-level risk, low-level risk. Do you mm -hmm. have like a matrix to prioritize this? Because uh, yeah. when you do an annual portfolio meeting with the board members. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you get only so much time to talk about it. What is it that you put first when you talk to the key stakeholders who help you mitigate risk? What are the first few things you prioritize? Yeah, yeah. so I, ha I follow um, uh, the typical classic automotive method. So I, for some reason, I'm attached to that. There is the occurrence of an event. There is the severity of an event and ah. then the ability to detect an event. So if you rank it, that's a, that's a stand, standard uh, uh, failure mode effects analysis method I've been using. So it's a okay. three. Okay. So, it's, uh, so it's the occurrence. So what's the probability of occurring something going to occur, right? And that's, that's one ranking. And then you're going to look at that severity. If it occurs, okay, so now what is it going to do, right? That's, and then you're looking at the detection. Can I detect it uh, before it occurs? and I can solve it, right? So then, then it becomes a moot point. So I can solve this one. So when I put those numbers in and I give the ranking and you can pick whatever it is, it's a zero to five scale or a zero to 10 scale, it depends. I mean, and then you're gonna come up with a number and then you can sort it out. So not everything is the same level of risk. And yeah. there are some things which might be only, yeah, yeah it, it can never occur like Corona, uh, but when it occurs, it's, uh, it's severity, yes, out the yes. roof. Yes. And you detected, you may not be able to solve. So there's two tens, that's automatically a high risk item. So that's the one way you can keep things at the minimum and not drive yourself crazy. Mm -hmm. But that is a living document. It constantly moves. If you sense something, example, when December, we had Yuhan, um, 
the, the virus breakdown. And first thing is, Yuhan is going to shut down. I made calls to all my Chinese suppliers and directly connected with their executives. And what's your plan? And we looked at our entire supply chain. We minimized all placing orders. It was, it was premature, but we didn't place any orders to any Chinese vendors. And we were waiting and we were finding alternate source to place orders because we couldn't afford to take that risk. Uh, it could have been nothing. Right, so it could have been nothing, and this would have been just like any other thing. It was a flu, and boom, gone. But still, we had to take that extra step. But it went beyond that point, and it shut down China. Luckily for us, we had four components, nothing affected, and it was all on time. So, if we didn't take that step and be paranoid and look at other place for getting it, we would have been stuck. We would have, we would have delayed our project by another two months, and then further down now, U.S. is shut down. It's going to be a six to eight months delay before we come out of this. Right now, we are looking at maybe it's a week delay, or even we can pull that in. So that is uh, that's when you have a team that listens and follows through. It's much easier. I didn't have to do an uphill battle in AI. I didn't have to convince anybody. I have to push this out, hey, we are seeing this as a risk, and I had my materials team run in and get alternates and everything else. So matrix and all those things, all the book work helps only when you efficiently use it and follow through with it. Awesome, awesome, great. You know, when you were talking about this uh, strategy just now, I remember the book, uh, Only the Paranoid Survive, How to Exploit Crisis Points That Challenge Every Company by Andy Grove. Uh, yep. Is- you know, That's a great book, yeah. Yeah, it's a great book and for a good reason because you are being paranoid but you're saving the boat the way you're yes. describing it, the way you made calls to the Chinese and, uh, you know, um, amazing, amazing. You should also be the chief risk officer. <laughs> yes, and, and being, being a, being, going, going to law school always looks at a different angle. So I'm an engineer and I have a, a legal background. So I always look at the negative side and try to see how do I find solution uh, thanks to my... Uh, legal education that's that's actually helps me a lot in this this scenario and and add to it i in life in general um i'm very uh not risk covers i am i love to take risk but i want to make sure it's a calculated risk right so that's always been my case as long as it's a calculated risk it's good uh the other thing is i mean a lot of people talk about doomsdays things and being paranoid and be prepared and I'm, I'm not the extreme, but I do think about it. And we always had, at home, we always had drills and how do we prepare for things like if something happens. And, and it's, sometimes it sounds childish. Yeah. Now looking back, yeah. I mean, we would have never gone through this process and we were prepared for food and in our house, we were prepared for everything. We didn't actually panic and go to store. Not, not for anything. So, so that is the way of life and way of thinking. So I kind of practice lean on one end, lean. And I've, I'm one of those guys put lean in my refrigerator 20 years ago and I almost <laughs> lost it. Uh, it's, uh, it was never a good idea to do it. And uh, to there to now, we looked at ourselves like, oh my God, we are very well prepared. We never thought that this is going to hit us. But um, yeah, we have food for a month and so. And, and even after that, we will be fine. And everything goes locked down. We are fine. Right. So it's, it's a mentality and a mindset. It comes um, by practicing. I mean, I can't help, uh, but think, you know, I'm looking at your resume. You, you've had a stint at Metronix. You, you've been in regulatory and this is 
kind of uh, uh, you know made you very very uh, resilient this is the future building resilient organizations which survive uh, major changes i think yep. that's where it's uh, that's where it's taken you so yep. you know uh, you you also had experience as an investor what is your uh, advice when you meet founders uh, who are uh, uh, you know uh, struggling with this uh, phase of risk management because founders are very passionate they are hungry and foolish uh, if you may call it so and uh, how do you stop them and ask them to look at a risk framework is it or does it make sense at all uh, so early in the game you know uh, grilling them with risk frameworks does that even make sense yeah so so i put founders and i i was a founder once and i have been a founder you know how many times four times and i every time and somebody tells that my product or has something has risk it's like somebody calling my child ugly or has some kind of fault this is a nature inherent human mentality if a designer does some kind of design and somebody comes and critiques or tells something they get defensive and that applies to most founders and their brilliance uh is what we want but we have to support them with people who are thinking with risk you cannot change the founder who is the inventor or who is the brain behind this operation you cannot overload them because when when the moment they start thinking too much about risk they will not be able to do it but how do you counter it as an investor is balance them with somebody who can manage that risk part so you're partnering there's why a lot of the companies have somebody managing the either the cfo or a president who balances the the founder or the ceo's uh the brain power and thinking ahead and running and they don't care about the risk they want to do it but if you don't balance it you you are adding risk for the investors oh right this is yes. one of the best advice uh, i have received because you know we've ha- uh, when i was at my last startup we had this entire gdpr thing it was just thrust upon us we were a completely on the web company we completely relied on sending uh, uh, you know requests to doctors uh, uh, and uh, you know aggregating the data and gdpr put a very harsh stop on all our activities and mm-hmm. uh, our founders were very defensive that uh, they had to heed to gdpr and uh it took me a whole day to convince them that gdpr is big but finally the they find all the all the data entrepreneurs uh who did not comply several million dollars and that kind of sent the message but founders you know can be really hard and uh, this mm-hmm. is a strategy it's a very good yep. strategy and yep. uh, yeah go ahead yeah so so how that's i treat founders babies the startups as their own babies that's how it is right so they want to make it look good and they want to grow that they want to nurture it when very few of them will take constructive criticism if they are first time founders that's worse because they can they never have been through that path if they yeah. are like seasoned they have done like serial like few rounds and they have failed few of them Mm-hmm. without failure no experience so yeah. out of five i failed one very miserably in 2017 uh-huh. lost a lot of money and i was not the, the i was a co-founder and i couldn't revive the relationship and because of relationship failure even though i have done so many things successful and i got like <laughs> it was given to me really bad so the lesson what you learn is you can never be rest assured that you're going to be successful so for founders they don't care they just want to run they want to make things work 
So when you, as an investor, you want to get returns, right? So you yeah. get, and especially when you're acquiring a company, if you are an M&A and you're coming in a large company and you're buying a small company, there's always a conflict. Founders do not last for long because now the, the goal is different. So founders want to keep running, keep the options open. They want to make the next best thing while the company which bought it or the investor who invested it want to make revenue and, and profit out of it. So that's the conflicting part, but how you can manage it? You balance them. You actually add somebody to balance that and they have to confide in that person. It's like having a mentor. Most of the founders, that's why when you have the investors, what they do is they put mentors for the founders so that they can slowly get them to understand without them losing their core competency. Yeah, this is both strategy and tactic at the same time. And uh, the mentors should be good listeners. That's the yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You are not trying to change them. You are trying to make them understand certain things without you cannot slow a founder if you slow them down then you're killing the startup right then there is no difference between a startup and a matured company you yeah. want them to be agile but also they want you want them to be cognizant of the risks right, at the right. same time they have to move at the same speed awesome awesome great this is a truly good insight uh, for startup founders if i am doing a startup now and working with an investor i'm going to wear the investor's hat and be very compassionate with them because um they have they're in a tough spot they can see the mm -hmm. risk and they can't convince the founder. That's a very hard spot to be in. Mm -hmm. uh, anyway, uh, I was wondering how you apply this uh, um, thinking in, in, in as an entrepreneur. You know, a lot of companies have spin-offs where they uh, have an internal CEO for a particular organization, but they're very much part of the large organization. Mm -hmm. So have, have you come across that scenario? Do you think that that works? Um, because we have Google X, you know, and the, the GDI has got so many, um, you know, companies, they're independent, they're spin-offs. Mm -hmm. yep. uh, how, how does that play out? It, it depends upon the culture of the mothership, right? So, example, Google, uh, it still behaves, even though it's a large company, still it, it was a startup and it, it came through that pipeline and, yeah. and they still have that culture. Most of the large Silicon Valley companies still hold on to that culture. Unlike companies in the Midwest, once they become matured and they lose that startup mentality and they become very rigid. So it depends on the mothership. That, that said, having a little incubator within a company which drives innovation and having that it helps because you have the comfort of the, the investment and the, and the big umbrella, but still you can do it. But there has to be an accountability, right? So when an investor, uh, even an incubator or even a Series A investor comes and puts money, they would expect return on when they are, when they are getting out of this product. Yeah. Like when you are in a, in a, a, being an uh, entrepreneur, you have to have some kind of what is the measure right for series a to series b how much did my investment grow and then towards the c and the exit right so now you are calculating your multiple some people say oh you're you're a multiple guy right but that's what investors are because they take risks and they bet on companies and they want them to exit and and they make the money so entrepreneurs have to have similar goals if you are doing it nine to five job and you're having no incentive for that small little organization within this big mothership to grow, people aren't going to do it. I mean, it will be a failure. But on the other hand, if it has equal or similar 
incentive. Uh-huh. That will definitely flourish because you have the investment, the company's putting money in, but then also you have to show your returns because you have to grow and you, you will be eventually either a spinoff out of the large company or you're going to be absorbed in, but you're going to get the reward. The people have to get the reward. The incentive for a startup employee is options rather than salary. Right, right. right? So if they have that incentive, it's going to grow. And that is, that's, the organization has to be given that, that autonomy to drive. If you don't have the autonomy, you're going to have all the procedures and process and you're under the same umbrella of ISO 9001 as your mothership and you get audited the same way, you are not an incubator. You, you are not an entrepreneur. You're just part of the organization with a different name. Yeah, exactly. So, That's a very critical point you brought up. You know, but take them off the uh, hook for a little bit and let them, uh, uh, you know, use their own autonomy and be creative because uh, this is... Uh, uh, you know, uh, the innovator's dilemma, you want to disrupt yourself before somebody else outside does that. And you, whoever is doing the job, whoever is innovating, you give them uh, the autonomy. So, uh, you know, you know, Eric Ries, uh, the uh, author of Lean Startup, he's got a term innovation accounting. Uh, mm-hmm. where every cycle of innovation, you have a, uh, a balance sheet. And I'm guessing, uh, do you advise that spin-offs, uh, you know, go into this, uh, 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 entire exercise with innovation accounting as, as yep. okay, okay. Yep, I agree with that because the reason why I agree with it is at the end of the day, if you are a startup, you by yourself and you went and raised money, and people want your balance sheet, they want to see your cash flow, and they want to know how you are managing your money. It's right. it is a different world because if you run out of money, now you're going to go back to investors asking for more. And yeah. if you don't show progress, the chance of you getting the money is low and they're going to panic and they're going to pull out. Now, it doesn't happen in a large company if you're part of it. So Lean Startup, when we, I, I have that book. It's, it's on my coffee table right now. So I, I read that book. So, um, and, uh, and if you look at it, it's, you have to have the mentality of a large corporation with the flexibility of a startup. I like that's that. when that's when you become a real real company and um, you, you will have the potential to grow yeah i i, I was just uh, interviewing uh, someone uh, on a podcast last week and he said the founders should have the big picture and that's exactly what you spelled out in a very practical way uh, every innovator should have the uh, you know large corporation thinking that's uh, that's that's how you put it so amazing uh, so nate what's next for you what is Nate going to be doing in 2021? What is your future plan? <laughs> oh, 2021 is uh, AI. We want to either take it to a point that it can be acquired by a large player. That's our goal. Uh, or we have to be uh, getting out of uh, this and going to IPO. So that two, both of them require uh, bringing in revenues and profitability. Right, so we are looking at two different markets. We look at our mobility market, which is uh, which is robo taxis and non non automotive uh, market, and then we are we are also in the in the process of ADAS, which is uh, car companies. So we have partners um, uh, in Germany and Japan uh, and Korea. So so we are looking at both, and we have our product has been set perfectly aligned for this because we are modular. When you are modular, you are yep. flexible. You can you can adjust things on the fly. So there's a lot of flexibility there. So which is positioning ourselves in the right place to win. Of course, mm-hmm. Corona is going to slow down the market, especially mm-hmm. with auto companies. Now 
they are not making cars they are making ventilators last i heard yes. so now it's interesting but that's how you do in crisis right world war ii we, the car companies made airplanes and bombers to, to to support the war now we are building ventilators to support the the this crisis so yes. once once they come out of this this is all going to play out well so our goal is to be the company which survives like our company survives mm -hmm. in 2021 and not only surviving making sure that we have our product and we are selling product and our technologies is is proven it's we don't have to prove it again now the scalability part is what we are trying to prove we have everything set up so we will start launching and we will start progressing the market we have to be agile and adjust to the market so if our oem customers are going to delay the program that is fine we will survive and we have other other markets to cater into we will use that and that's the goal for 2021 and other than that personally i mean i have a lot of things i do uh, i do um i do write scripts for movies and i do produce movies uh, uh every five seven years uh i'm working on during this time i got to keep myself sane so i'm writing a couple of uh, uh uh scripts right now um that probably will end up if i get time to get it out to production i might do that so so a few things on the plate well I'm, I'm totally fascinated by that can i ask what is the uh, topic you're uh, you know uh, or, or what what kind of movie you're uh, scripting so right now uh, one is a uh, it's a comedy thriller and then other one is a true drama uh it's mostly i'm, I'm trying to cater for the uh qb platform which is coming up shortly it's like a 10 minute um uh content um right. that mag Whitman uh launched service it's going to come out so we are trying to target that mm -hmm. uh previously i used to do feature films i don't have that unless uh ai is out and after that probably I'll, I'll do a feature it's long overdue but right now i'm looking at uh 10 minute uh or 15 minute short uh that way i can keep my creativity side uh, still alive awesome awesome you're truly a very talented person you know uh, uh this entire uh, discipline of writing a script is uh is, is nothing but big picture thinking your uh, education in law school it is again um, uh, equipped you with big picture thinking so uh, and and the way you described uh, uh, you know previous um, uh, uh, pandemics situations like uh, recession and uh, what not uh, the dot com bubble you truly have a very big picture you know when to zoom out and zoom in so uh, with that uh, thank you Nate thank you very much uh, for coming to this podcast thanks for that